From FasterMind.co, this is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about that space, that tension between the stuff you make and making money or something valuable from your stuff. The show lives where creativity and business collide, giving all of us the opportunity to rethink how we work and live in the digital economy. There are inspirations, and then there's Jazz Amplifar. Jazz is an extraordinarily gifted entrepreneur and creative. She also is a world-renowned educator in the K-12 through space. She lives in England and has an amazing English accent that is so witty and quick, you will be front edge of seat just to keep up. She is a TEDx speaker, a Go Summit speaker at Go18 coming up here in January, and is someone that I look to with great admiration and respect. It's one of the reasons why she was invited to appear on The Apprentice in the UK and galvanizes audiences around the world. The reason I invited her on today's show, though, with Converge, wasn't just because of how good she is at her craft. It's because of the road that got her there and how that road could connect to your road, your story. And when you make that correlation, I think what you'll discover is that there's more available to you than you ever thought possible. Jazz Ampafar, welcome to Converge. Thank you. It is fun to have you on this conversation for me because it's such a personal conversation and one that I've been privileged to be a part of. We've known each other for the better part of a decade now. Yeah, when, yeah. when you and I were both spending a lot of time in and around the photo industry with creatives and business. And But for you, you have actually, you've had a lifelong journey, not only in the creative professions, but also in education, specifically with as a master teacher in the K through 12 space, but also consulting and really helping in the formative fundamental pieces of child learning. But there's so much more to your story that we're going to get to, but I want to slow the train down and invite listeners to get to know you if they don't know you already, if through your TEDx or wherever. But could you just methodically walk us through your process of a life at home that was pretty crazy growing up to you finding yourself in a classroom and why why yeah. in the world would you land there? How honest do you want me to be? Because I can go full throttle or <laughs> I can give you the potted polite version. Which one would you like? Well, let me check in with the audience. Audience, what do you think? Okay, really? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So they're up for the whole thing. They're up for the whole thing. So whatever you feel comfortable with, it's great. So there's all sorts of buzzwords that we have in the UK education system to describe kind of disadvantaged or deprived or poor children. I'm just going to go with the truth. I was born, I'm mixed race, I'm brown. I was born to a white mum and an unknown dad in the 70s, which was a really bad time to have a little brown baby. It wasn't trendy yet in Britain to have that. And and I grew up with my grandma and granddad. I didn't know my mum was my mum. She kind of came and went. And everything was fine until I was about eight. I mean, we were poor, but we were happy. And then when I was eight, my mum had had another baby, my younger brother, and then evidently was pregnant again. And my granddad died and my grandma said she had to leave. So we moved in with my stepdad and my mum and life was just manic. We moved into a brothel. That's where we lived in the first instance. So I was completely exposed to a world of mayhem and chaos with adult issues and adult relationships and sexual things that I didn't need to see at eight. Neither did my brother at, at six. And it kind of got worse from there. We moved into a squat. I was beaten. My The first night we were sent to bed, my brother was, we sort of snuck back down um, as we used to do at my nan's to get a glass of water and watch telly for half an hour. And my stepdad just went ballistic. And I, I've never seen violence before. I'd seen cowboys and Indians movies. That was my whole life. But he grabbed my brother and shook him like by his head, I, by his hair. And so I threw myself into this. And then that was the preamble then that I would take beatings for my brother and then the other brothers that came along. And that kind of went further to, we weren't spoken to, we weren't nurtured in any way and we were neglected, but we weren't spoken to. We were ordered to do stuff. So we became, I became a skivvy really. I, I would go to the shops and make food and steal food. That was my main job. And until kind of my mum went into hospital to have my third well, the third of us. And that's when my stepdad started raping me. And that carried on continuously, really, up until the time when I was 12. I remember we did sex ed at school and I was terrified that I was going to be pregnant. So I abandoned my own babies, my brothers, who by now there were four of us. I left because I was scared and I lived on the streets. I slept rough, got myself a boyfriend because I'm that resilient. Turned out to be a pimp, but he was really nice to me. I mean, he was just incredibly nice. 
And it wasn't until he was buying, we were shopping for an outfit. He'd let me stay with him, bought me sweets, told me I was beautiful. And I held up this outfit that he wanted me to try on. And I thought, Mrs. Cook wouldn't like this. Mrs. Cook was my teacher in like first grade. This is years later. And one clear thought, Mrs. Cook, went, and just that clear thought, I dropped the outfit. I ran out. I handed myself in to child services, demanded to be found a foster home. And and it was quite turbulent. Oh, yeah, foster care is no picnic. It was turbulent, turbulent, turbulent. But at the end, I ended up, I stayed in school. I was in school. And I was lucky enough to have five like accidental heroes who didn't necessarily do anything big, but came one after the other and just engaged with humanity before teaching me the bus stop method for long division. They knew that I needed a connection before I needed learning. I needed to belong before I needed to behave. And and it kind of set me on, it just gave me a window to a world that I wasn't, I didn't know existed where I wasn't worthless and I wasn't cheap and I wasn't dirty and I wasn't a thing. I was a person and I could actually contribute something. I don't want to kind of make it think like it was this fairy tale and everything was fine because it was just pure hell. But these teachers were in my life continuously, one after the other. And and just when I finished school, I got, I flunked my A-levels. I mean, I failed everything. And the A-levels are what you just need to get into university. I got two E's. I failed. I, there's no way I could get into university. I had nowhere to live. I was going to be on the street again. And one of the teachers, Julie, my drama teacher, said, if you were committed, you would ring every university in the country until you got a place. And I thought, Yes. Okay, fine. So I started doing that. And I rang a Scottish university and said, oh, hi, I got two E's. And because of the accent thing, she thought I said two A's. And she said, oh, that's amazing. Come for an interview. And I'm like, no, no, two E's. So uh, it was, oh, no. And then the next place I thought, well, if only I was Scottish. So I phoned up a teacher training college and said, hello, my name's Jazz. I got two E's. Can I come for an interview? And they said, yes. And that's how I got my interview because it comes to its success by any means. You know, and what these teachers have taught me is there is always a way. I'm not for a minute suggesting that you should lie or pretend to be foreign to get into university. But and I turned up for the interview and the guy said to me, you're from this estate in Nottingham. My cousin works there as a youth worker and like girls get pregnant at 12 and leave school. How are you here? And I'm like, let me tell you a story. And I told him about the teachers and people believing in me and my trajectory that was changed. And at the end, I said, and by the way, I've got two E's, not two A's. Is that okay? And he said, if you promise to be more authentic, I promise to get you a place at this college. And I didn't know what authentic meant, but right then I would have signed up for anything. And I said, yes. And I was given the amazing opportunity to train to be a teacher to be an everyday hero. And that's what happened. Having had the chance to know some of that, I know as folks at home are listening to this and they're on a run or they're in their car, some are parked in a driveway, just going, they can't leave. <laughs> they want to hear more of your story because clearly the story didn't end there. It just in many ways began. And I don't want, I'm with you. Like, I don't want to skip too quickly to, there's something that is so sober about what you're describing. It would be callous and wrong to not acknowledge the gravity of what you survived and also yeah. to acknowledge these i loved how you called them heroes these teachers who stood in the gap and i suspect i'm wondering what you think of this they didn't have to have been teachers but those were the folks that were in the space you were in and they played that role and it does seem like teachers have a unique opportunity in our culture and society to play that kind of role and here you now you fast forward you're married to Ed and you have these amazing children. And in many ways, you're on another planet from those old yeah, days. Yeah. But talk a little bit about, I guess, those, because, and I'll, actually, that's one more piece. Not all teachers are created equal. Like, not all teachers are the <laughs> ones that showed up the way they did for you, for at least sure. in my experience. So just talk a little bit about current life as yeah. a consultant and as an educator who gets invited literally all over the world to share what it is that you care about now, given that is your context. And yeah. why do you call these teachers heroes? Or at least why are you calling the hero out of the teacher? Yeah, I mean, and you're right. It's not teachers as such. My, my, Because my field is education, I've identified five specific teachers. But actually, what it, there was a surrounding cast of accidental saviors. But the big thing that stands out for me is relationship. You know, I always say teaching starts with art. It's about relationship. And because when you grow up in a home where there is an alcoholic or an abusive parent or chaos, you learn to read body language, micro expressions, tone of voice. So much so, I thought I was psychic. 
because I could tell the adults in my life that came and went, the doctors, the shopkeepers, the teachers, the social workers, I could tell the ones who said and did what they thought and felt and the ones who just paid lip service and had no connection to their words. I knew. I was in a school recently. I speak to students as well. And there are 300 school leavers in a room. And I said, put your hands up if you feel that the staff in this school are for you. And not only did only four hands go up, there was this collective from the 16-year-olds that were there. And I looked at the staff and some of them look broken because they do everything. They do everything for these students. Some look nonplussed because it's like we're in a war anyway. It's them and us in their mind because they've had that, you know, they've had the trauma and the threat all the time of constantly being measured and it's just numbed them. And then I said to the students, put your hands up if you feel that one or two teachers are for you. 300 hands. And I turned to the staff and I said, they know, just, you know, they know. So it's not, being a teacher is a privilege because you get to build a relationship. And even in high school where you've got 300 students a week, you know, it's not about being their buddy and telling them about your life and how many divorces you've had and, and, you know, sharing all this in-depth information. It's about the sort of loss of caring, you know, it's about... It's about standing outside the room and saying hi when they come in. It's about using their name rather than shouting instructions. It's about taking an interest. It's about knowing something. Like if you're going to sell to these kids, you've got to know what your audience is into, not just expect that you can. I'm in primary. You know, what we do is we have a 3D shapes. We have like a prism and a different shapes in a bag. And we say, oh, who wants to put their hand in my magic bag? What can you find? It's a triangle. And it's like, that's not magic. It's just a triangle. You know, it's not real. So it's this whole feeling of relationship. And I think that's one of the biggest things that they did. The fact I'm not dead and I'm not a prostitute and I'm not on drugs is incredible. But the fact that I was able to consider the possibility of forming a relationship with a human mm. male, I, that is mind-blowing. That's mm. mind-blowing. And to have children. God. Tell me, we're going to get to you, <laughs> that side of the equation in a second, but tell me a little bit about this distinction you're making. When, when the kids looked over and they had the collective sigh of, yeah. yeah, the system doesn't have their back, but when they thought about the particularity of one or two teachers, there was a universal sense of like, no, no, some there is someone. Yeah. What is that distinction? Talk more about that. I think what it is, is especially here, but I know in I speak in the health industry, in the education industry, in the social care industry, in industries where there's an administration that is serving the people delivering the service. But at some point that relationship got flipped and we started serving the administration. And the administration has to be about data. It has to be about numbers before names. But the people in the administration, the teachers, the social workers, the doctors, they have to be about names first not numbers. But unfortunately, sometimes success is measured in terms of data. And so you make a choice. It's like you get paid according to which kids pass which exams here. So if you've got a child who's going to possibly get like the top grade and a child who isn't, and you're going to get paid based on how many kids get their top grade. I mean, that's a mind-boggling abuse of systematic education where we, you've got three kids and a mortgage yourself. Of course, you're going to focus on this or you're going to have to dig deep and remember that you came here to make a difference. And also remember that if you have relationship, if you, I always think of this, like the wind and the sun, you know, that story where the, they have a bet about who can get the guy to take his coat off and the wind mm. is mm. blowing and the guy's pulling his coat and then the sun just shines and the guy says, it's a bit hot and takes his coat off. Mm. And I, I just think that's the sun is what gets people on side in the first place. It's not about insisting they behave and insisting they believe and then they can belong. It's about saying, you belong, full stop. And then they start to behave differently and they start to believe in something. And before you have it, you've got the end event. But I, I think it's with the sort of teachers I see is that you come into education or health or any job serving with all this drive. And then over time, threats come in, you know, whether it's assessment or being watched or, or whatever, and, you know, relying on the money or having to tick the boxes. And then your ability to be compassionate to the people you work with, kind of you put all your energy into that. So you stop being compassionate to yourself. So you can actually be in a place where your values don't match up with your actions, but you just keep going because you just got to keep your head down and do it. And then when you've got like diminished drive, high threat, low compassion, that's textbook anxiety, depression, <laughs> stress. And that's when people start leaving. That's when people say, "Why?" the last question they ask themselves is, why am I doing this? And if you don't have an answer to that question, then you go and we lose talent. So my big thing is if you've got to put some flesh around why you're doing it, because if you don't, then your why is about fear. 
It's about trying to keep your head down and do the day. Mm. And that turns you into someone that is, you know, you lose the ability to be human first. Mm. And kids who are loved come to school to learn on good days. Kids who aren't come to school with the vain hope that somebody will acknowledge and validate and just give them the opportunity to see themselves as something greater than they believe they can be. Mm. I don't know why, you know, in a place where that's missed, I don't know how people expect to succeed to hit the targets because you've got to enroll people first. So as I'm tracking this, you have this horrific set of circumstances that you were born into. And out of that, there were these, I loved it, the accidental saviors that showed up in your world. Many were teachers, but there were many in a number of contexts. And you were kind of given some significant lifelines that you took and took action with. And you fast forward and now you're empowering teachers as well as students with two very different groups of folks. And now fast forward to today and we're on a conversation with folks who are trying to make something out of what they make, meaning they are creatives in business who are trying to, they're kind of, they have two tasks that sometimes can feel in conflict in many ways, kind of put themselves sometimes in the student role and sometimes in the teacher role as analogy. But I'd like to just spend a little time about your efforts with those teachers and dive a little deeper. You referenced the why piece, but when you work with teachers, because I think there's a lot of analogy here for creatives in business, I hear in your voice both an empathy for the teacher. They're under a tremendous amount of duress. Reminds me of the kind of duress like an independent freelancer or entrepreneur would be under when they're trying to feed their kids or yeah. you, know, you know trying to compete in a very flat and competitive market. So there's kind of some just very domestic realities, pressures that they're under. And yet they're in the service business. Their job is to serve someone else and do something unique with their creativity and to charge for it. As you've reflected on that and even come from that world a little bit, talk a little bit about both your empathy for teachers and how you enroll them into a bigger why. And how could that potentially translate for an entrepreneur or a freelancer? That's really so good, Dane, because I think it's this whole thing about choice. I think what happens when you're a sort of solo entrepreneur, or when you're on your own a lot, when it's like a laptop and a coffee and you, is that you can get hooked, you can get sucked in. And what we start telling ourselves is, I don't have a choice. And as painful as this is, as someone who sits with a laptop and a coffee and tries to engage people all the time, it really does come down to choice. And and as soon as you start telling yourself that you don't have a choice, you're in a different place with less resourcefulness than you could ever be than if you understood that actually you have several thousand choices. And I think it might be about just even making that shift in yourself to accept that you have the capacity to be master of your own fate you have the choice to do one thing and hope it works or to do a hundred things and never give up yeah but but I think in the reality when you sit there and I've sat there myself and you kind of feel like the only choice I have is to do this it feels like that choice is an enormous window and it's a big round window and you're standing and your chest is up against the windowsill and if you just even doze off or daydream for a second and lean forward, you will fall into that choice and you've made it. It's the choice that everyone is expecting you to take. It's the choice that everyone has taken before. It's just the natural next step. And I've been in a place where I feel like that's my only option. But what's really interesting and why coaching is so important, coaching and or therapy and or anything that is getting you to reflect and get into a metacognitive questioning sort of reflection on your what you're doing and this is one thing that I know that you help like thousands of people with Dane the coaching is that if you have a coach they can ask you questions that can help you understand that there are literally hundreds of other choices and those circles are smaller they're tiny and they're around the edge of this enormous circle and you need a coach to even shine a light on it to show you that those choices exist sometimes and you need enormous sort of temperament and conviction and I know why I'm doing this to even enter one of those tiny circle choices, but actually they're there. And this is the talk I've had to give to myself. It's the way I've talked to prisoners. It's the way I enroll people. And I kind of have, I have sort of have three E's, I think three or four E's to enrolling people. And the first one is enticing. And that's where you have real empathy, not sympathy. Sympathy is literally useless, but empathy 
can galvanize people into action. What's the difference between sympathy, sympathy and empathy? Sympathy is, is like if people, sometimes people hear, they watch my TED talk and they say, oh, I'm so inspired. And I think that's that's a middle of the, that's good. To be inspired is good. But my question is, what are you inspired to do? And then some people say, oh, I well, no, I'm just inspired. And I think, well, you know, inspired is a verb. It's a doing word. You've got to actually take action. So maybe you're something other than inspired. I don't know. Some people come up and say, I, I'm so sorry about your past. It seems it's awful. And I think, yeah, it is. It's, it is awful. I'm not discounting that. And it's really sad. And what now? I mean, I, it just it doesn't serve me to sit in the same space that I have been in. You don't get to be this kind of human unless you commit to therapy. And some of it has been awful and destructive. And some of it has been incredible. Less of it, I've got to say. But, uh, you know, you, and sitting in the sadness, there's a time for that. But it's not it's no space to grow. In suffering is no space to grow. It's head down, hands on your head, blinkered approach to everyone else. The next stage is surviving where your head's up, but your hands are still sort of forming a blinkered binocular, minion type binocular goggles around your eyes. So you're very <laughs> focused on going forward. And that's surviving and surviving is great, but it's not the highest and best thing you can do because the next thing is seeking where you actually take your hands out to the sides and it gives you a 180 degree view. And if you just turn your head, you can actually see even more than 180. But where we're trying to get to is where your hands are down and in front of you and your palms are up and they are open and you've gone from suffering to surviving to seeking to actually serving. And serving means that you are able to give out of your own pain, your own distress, your own kind of thinking about what am I going to do? How am I going to serve people? And you're open to receive. And that is when you start to grow. Like when you volunteer to do working an elderly folks home and you think it's going to be you giving and you actually find that they give more to you. So my whole thing is empathy is so important. You have to, empathy is, I hear you. I hear you. When I speak to prisoners, I say, listen, I know what it's like for the world to owe you a living. I get it. And you are completely within your rights to be bitter and twisted. And that's the that full stop. It's not, but there is no but. That's the end of the story. You are within your rights. Absolutely. Life has dealt you a really bum deal. There's no but. There's an and. And there's always an opportunity to make a different choice, hard as it is to hear. And so hearing someone is really important because if people don't feel heard, they won't buy into anything you say. And then the next stage is to engage them with the conversation that the kind of enticement of there is another choice. Are you interested in hearing that? Are you ready? And if you're not ready, do you know what? That's fine. But own it. Don't blame it on. Oh, well, it's this. I've got to do this. I've got I've got these pressures. Own the fact that you are not ready, that it's not no never, but it is no now. And that's fine. But don't if you hide from it, you'll stay there longer than you need to. And then once you've kind of engaged, that's when the enrollment starts, when you start asking questions of what could it look like if you could do it. And then you get to enhance. And enhance is the part of the relationship where you are able to start serving and making a difference and having an impact. But what we want to do is we want to go from suffering to enhanced serving and without doing the walk. We want the authenticity without the vulnerability. And that's, you know, it's never going to be as good. I, it's never going to work as well if you haven't trodden the road. So I kind of think in the times when you're struggling and you're alone and it's like, so, but all these pressures, listen, if you need to go and do something else, make tents for a while, you know, work at Ikea, which is actually my dream job, then go do it. But be honest with yourself. Because if you're not completely convicted into making things work, then obviously the journey for you is going to be more uphill. And I, I need to take my own advice on that because I have times where I'm looking at cash flow and I'm thinking, what can I do? But do you know what? That is when I'm at my most creative. I, I remember a time when I was at uh, university and in the holidays, we all got kicked out of halls because they would rent the halls out for conferences. So I was homeless every single holiday. And this one Christmas, I was stood on the street and I saw juggling. It was just coming into fashion and I couldn't afford some juggling balls. So I got some balloons and rice and I made these juggling balls and I called them jazzy jugglers and I stood on the street and I said I will teach you to juggle in 15 minutes and you get a packet of juggling balls or you can have your money back and I charged people five pounds to teach them to juggle and to give them a packet of juggling balls that's how I ate and as I was doing this someone came up to me and said do you do children's parties and I said yes I do <laughs> because <laughs> it was about saying yes first and working the details out after and I think that is what you know, everything I say, you can read in a book. You, there are more eloquent speakers. There are better TED Talks that you can go watch and get the same information. But what people pay me for is for that commitment, the passion, the stickability through the journey, because they that's what they haven't got. 
what they're lacking is, well, I'm at a point where I'm, I'm struggling. I mean, how do we go further? Now, you can read it. You can go online. There's loads of great stuff, but I'm kind of living it. And so if I even kind of deny myself that struggle, if I deny myself thinking, oh, everything, it's not about being positive all the time. It's about going, yes, it's hard. There's no cash coming in. You've got all these commitments. So what are you going to do? What do you want to do? Do you want to go get a job? Do you want to do that? You can do that if you want. Have you exhausted all the options? Do you want to do this? And I think at that point, it's just realizing I'm making the decisions. I always say, you know, being, it sounds, I don't know, I'm speaking from experience, but being desperate to eat kind of makes you super creative Mm, (laughs) resourceful mm, mm. because suddenly either do that or I've had times when I'm like I'll just go get a job I'll do that because that will solve the short-term problem but it won't solve the problem of what you're on the planet for you know unless doing a job is that reason then that's fine there's nothing wrong with it but the reason you came out in the first place was to make a difference so what is that difference and how do you continue to push along at that so I want to talk about these four enticing engage enrollment enhance yeah yeah because as i hear those i'm picturing people in my life myself in my life when i've been at different places and i didn't have this kind of elegant rubric to consider but or kind of framework but there are certain depending on the category it seems like someone could be in one category of their life be into this authentic serving mode like they're in enhanced level stuff like high grade no scarcity all abundance giving out of a full tank. It's amazing. And at the same time, the same person, if the right triggers are in place or the right conditions, the same person could be very much in a incapacitated state. Yeah. Yeah. And some of those folks could be super high functioning in that one area, like ridiculous. So it to their colleagues and friends around them, it looks weird that in this, if the right, <laughs> if the right conditions are in place over here, why are they so arrested in their development in one section and then like so able in another. Yeah. 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 Can you talk a little bit about that? Cause I think this is some of the confusion for creatives in business who are like, wait, I don't understand why in certain moments I can get so low and feel so like a victim and like, I can't get anywhere. I, I don't have a choice as you said earlier, or they feel like that feeling is it's arrested them. They're stuck with it. Yeah. Yet in other categories, they're so competent and so able and they actually feel this divide because they're affirmed for that competence in one area. Yeah. And then they yeah. feel almost a sense of shame that they're so stuck in the other. Can you talk about yeah. the dynamic or relate to it? Oh, definitely. When I started teaching, I was very passionate about reading, writing and spelling. They were my tickets out of mindset poverty, not just physical poverty. And so, And it was kind of a natural thing for me to be engaged with. And I would stop at nothing. I'm not taking no for an answer. My big why was these kids will not leave my class without making progress in reading, writing and spelling that enables them to leave primary school being able to read, write and spell. That I'm not going to allow for the figures. My kids are not going to be stats. So I went above and beyond you know, to try and find different ways and engage with different things. And people started noticing parents would come in and say, how come my five-year-old in your class can spell and write and is more confident than my nine-year-old? And I would say, I have no idea. I use a sock puppet. Do you want to borrow it? You know, I, I really didn't sort of know the process, but I was committed to finding a way. I went to see a publisher whose scheme I'd been using Chris Jolly at Jolly Phonics, I strolled in and said, here, you should give me some free resources, mate, because I'm making money for you recommending your stuff. And he saw a good thing when he knew it. And he said, hey, come and do some talks for me. And he sent me all around the world talking about what I'd done in class. And before I knew it, I'm renowned. There's only like 10 people in the world doing what I do right at the beginning of this wave of kind of phonic teaching. And I'm one of them. I'm being asked to speak by governments. I'm being employed to give advice. I'm in schools. I'm at conferences. I'm on the television. I'm everywhere. And I come back at night and Ed says, so how was your day? And I go, yeah. And during the day, people have said, you have changed my life. What you've said has changed our entire education authority, has transformed because of a course I went on that you did. And that's great. It's all great. But I get home and I just like, it doesn't touch the sides. And I think one of the things for us, the gift and the curse of that is the fact that we are human and humans are inbuilt to question themselves. If you're not being chased by a tiger, you're worried about what people think of you. So we're inbuilt to worry about that. And actually, I think my drive to make a difference has been so clear and enhanced that has got me through without building anything into my ability to be compassionate towards myself, to have empathy for me, to understand that actually 
you know, what I'm doing requires a lot and I might feel low. And when I'm low, I'm at my least resourceful. And when I'm vulnerable, these thoughts come. But I, I am so outwardly an overachiever. I can't talk to anyone about it. I can't say anything. And it really hit me when I turned up only 18 months, a year ago, at a conference, there's 300 teachers there. I'm one of the keynotes. I've got a great talk booked on marking and feedback. I've got my slides. I get ready to go on. And as I'm waiting, there's a break before I go on. And as I'm watching these teachers, I suddenly get this scary, terrifying, random thought, which never really happens because I'm so well rehearsed in just going on and being humble and sharing great ideas and having everyone say that's great and nodding. And I'm so well rehearsed. It's just, it's my life script in that public space. And so to get a thought like this was so random and from nowhere, it can only have been planted by by a higher force. It would never have happened. I'm too good. I'm too focused. And this thought was, what if I just told the truth? Literally, what if I just told the truth. And I am very much a what if, but it's usually what if I die right now? What if the world caves in? What if my kids go missing? I mean, it's always what if negative. What if I just told the truth? And it was the ability, which is something I know we've talked about in that moment to stay neutral and get genuinely curious. And I went out to do my talk. I pulled my slides. I abandoned my entire PowerPoint and I stood in front of 300 teachers. And for the first time, professionally and publicly, I just told the truth that you guys are here and it's nighttime and you're knackered and it's exam season and you think, you know, you're trying to make a difference, but you're exhausted and you think you don't. And I'm telling you, this is what success looks like. Your impact is this. It's not measured in a year. It's not measured in an observation. It's measured in the life that the children whose lives you impact on go on to have. And you are the reason I'm not dead. I am the manifestation of the impact that you have. You are the reason I'm alive. And I just... It came from just wanting to be honest. And a part of me felt I could say this and then I could leave and never speak of it again and deny I'd said it and and just go back to being, you know, what I thought was successful. And and my model for that in the UK was to be in education, to be an effective speaker and trainer. My two things were to be more white and more middle class because those things are what people who are success look like. They're white and middle class. Now, I've got massive hair and a pleasantly large bottom. I can't blend into a crowd anyway. I can't be, I'm failing totally on the white thing. I can just about be middle class if I shut up and don't share any of my views. I can just about get away with it. But it was like constantly trying to be something that I saw as everyone else would describe as success. And actually what I've realized is that the unique thing that I had to give was the fact that I was prepared to go there. I was prepared to be vulnerable in order. If it would lift people up, then it was worth it. It was worth the vulnerability. And I think, and people say to me a lot, and they do it now, say, oh, you're so confident. And I say, you're misinterpreting. It's not confidence. I'm comfortable. I'm not confident, but I am comfortable with the possibility of it going wrong, with the possibility of it not connecting with everyone. I'm comfortable with that. I'm, I'm able to pivot and reframe. And, you know, I'm comfortable because my job is to show up and be authentically me. That's my job. And, and if I do that well, then that leads on to the next action. But I don't have to take responsibility for everything that happens. Some people won't get it. Some people won't be ready. And that's fine. That's not my portion. My portion is to deliver and be me in that space. So I do that. And that's what I never did before. Before it was about ego. It was about me knowing stuff. It was about, it was a well-crafted stand-up comedy routine that I knew the points to hit. I knew when teachers would laugh. I knew it. And I know I stand up there feeling like an imposter now. I'm like, I have no idea. I look out and I see people crying and I'm like, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Usually it's bad to make people cry. So I have so many more questions now and I feel so less like I'm, you know, crafting something amazing. But the reaction that I've had from people all over the world since I've started to be more authentic and vulnerable. Somebody said to me, a marketing expert said, companies would pay for that level of emotional engagement. And I thought, and yet all I'm doing is dropping everything that I assume is what everybody wants to see and just saying, do you know what? This is what I have. I don't have all the answers. I just have a bag full of questions. Let's think about them. And that has been so beautiful because it means that I, the effort that was there before to sustain this picture of success is now gone. It's now, I don't, I literally just be honest. And that is what that's brought more attention, more engagement, more work than anything, anything I've ever done before. So that level of honesty, it sounds like an authenticity that sounds like a kind of 
universal resource that people could access regardless of their context. So if someone isn't on a TED stage or they're not speaking to their industry as an educator, but they're just, they're making, they're an event planner, they're a wedding photographer, they're a graphic designer. How can they live more authentically? How can they put that out as a resource? Yeah, you know, like when I was in photography, like full time, and and you sort of think you get your why for going into it. You love taking pictures, you love telling stories, you love giving people that feeling when they see themselves looking amazing. I loved kind of giving people a window into their world, which they couldn't see because they were busy. So I, I loved to capture weddings. I loved to capture portraits of family portraits of children because it's because it can change the way they feel about their now, and so. But that why gets bogged down, doesn't it, with, you know, you've got to do the accounts and find someone to get your pictures online and a framer and all that stuff. And you end up doing a lot more of that than you do of anything else. And it's almost like you have to turn it on when a client rings or when you're in a a show. And I think sometimes what I felt the clients I connected with genuinely were the ones that I was interested in. I was genuinely interested in because my whole thing was about telling their story. Well, I can't tell their story if I assume the bits for it. So I listened more than I spoke. I was always very clear. My website was always interesting because I'm like a bit loud and a bit scatty and I'm very kind of focused and organized, but I'm, you know, all over the place. And I think if if I've got a lovely, beautiful, crisp white website with Times New Roman silver looped fonts on it, giving the impression that I am demure and some sort of I don't know ninja photographer who can blend in with the crowd I'm misselling who I am right there (laughs) and people will be disappointed at our first meeting so I try and be I try and capture who I am on that website but who I am is I always say my about me is about you I'm interested in your story I want to tell your story and also that turns people off because I've had clients that don't want to share things then we're not right for each other because if they don't want to share and my successful photographs rely on me being able to engage with them, then that's not a marriage made in heaven. So I think it's there's a filtering aspect of saying, you know what, you've got to be that whole yeast extract thing, that Marmite thing where they either like you or they don't like you because you want to filter out the people who who gel with your, resonate with your values. Yeah. And then and then it's not, there's a thin line between turning up and saying, oh my gosh, I don't know how to use my camera. I've forgotten my flash. It's too dark. It's going to rain. It's all going to go horribly wrong. You can have that inside conversation <laughs> with yourself but actually, at the point where you're there, it's not about you. It's about them. You're not the star of the show. They are. So it's about thinking, if I could be compassionate right now, what would I say? What would I do? What would I think? What would I feel? If it wasn't all about me and stressing about my kit and the photo and the kid who's running off chasing a wild dog, what would I, if I could be in their shoes right now, what would I say, do, think, feel that could resonate with them? And I think it's at every point you're making the choice to go with, that rawness of connection and human first authenticity on your website, in your emails, in the connection in the place, you're making choices all the time. And it's lots of, it's Marco Pierre White said, perfection is lots of little things done well. Mm. And I think if it's just a number of things, you can't just turn up and be amazing. It's a number of things that people look at you and they go, you really, you really get me. You really just get me. And that's when you know you have totally got them. When, when they feel heard and they feel held and they trust you, that's a currency. So I think in the world where you are working with people, it's that hard decision to make of, you know, some the clients are like boyfriends. You might snog a few, but you're not going to marry all of them. That's the whole point. It's, you're not meant to marry every single one. <laughs> and if you can spend the most time with the most lovely of people because you filter them through, then that is, those people will be with you for life. And I've, I've done weddings where I've, the client and I have not connected and I've said, I always do a pre-wedding shoot. They don't want to do a pre-wedding shoot. And I've caved and then the wedding on the day was difficult. So it was a very sort of very high end location and, and they were unhappy after it. And I just thought this was just, was just destined from the beginning. I knew, I knew we had no connection. We had no relationship and I wasn't the right photographer for them. And I stayed because I thought I'll just keep compromising. And I compromised to the point where there was nothing of me left. So I just became someone taking photos and that's not what they wanted. They needed someone to be able to connect with them. And I wasn't that person. And I should have said that earlier on and let them find a photographer and you know help them find someone who would be more in the kind of resonance stream that they were in. So, but it's a tough one because obviously at the same time, if someone asks you to do some work, you go, yes, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> You'll pay me, right. I'll be back with the rest of the conversation right after this short break. Have you invested in conferences or workshops that left you empty-handed? 
There was great content and you had great ideas about what to go do with it, but no change actually happened. That's not okay. At Go Summit, we're committed to helping you take action. To do that, we add personalized coaching and customized marching orders alongside the inspiring speakers, amazing location, and fun networking events. Honestly, there's nothing quite like it. Register today before tickets sell out at fastermind.co forward slash Go Summit. Well, it's funny because as I'm thinking about your story, I'm thinking about, you know, those early days of just clever survival and, you know, what did you call it? The juggling thing? The jazzy? Jazzy juggers. Do you want a pet? Jug- do you want- <laughs> no, I've still got do some I? in the garage. I think we should have a little session at Go where you teach everyone how to <laughs> jazzy juggle. And we'll talk about Go in just a second. But I, when I think about those very kind of clever survival, kind of street smart approach to making it, which in my mind, it really is resonant with anyone who starts out where they're, they have a skill and they're asserting the skill. And they're getting clever. Like they don't know how the skills are going to build to a something that can be compensated for, but they're they're leveraging what they have. But then, so we're not talking about that stage. That stage is just you're hustling and having fun and trying to figure it out. And like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they're paying me. We're talking about the person who's actually gone. This is what I do, and I'm going to be in this vacillation between these four E's you talked about, where you could be down and out, kind of discouraged. It's harder now than it used to be. It's a more competitive market. The market's changed, and you're kind of wooed yeah. into this place of disbelief. You could be at that level or you could be at this like top of your game where you are like that's what you're describing this kind of sense of maturity and ability to say to a client we're not for each other and that's a gift to tell them that. Yeah. And it's really tough when the client's saying I don't care I'm going to pay you and you're like well it's when the the entrepreneur or the freelancer takes the reins and is less of a I'm going to do it for whoever pays me and I'm going to actually I'm going to choose my clients. It seems like there's almost like a hierarchy of needs, like a a level of bands that I know for myself, when I reflect, I'm constantly going up and down (laughs) that xylophone and trying to sort through like which one. But if I'm doing that unconsciously, if I'm asleep at the wheel, I don't even know. Like one minute I'm on top of my game and the next minute I'm low or somewhere in between more often. And when that's the case, how do I, this is the last question I'll ask, how do I wake up? How do I discover where I'm at in that spectrum? And then what can I do from that place? And maybe we'll do all four. So how do I wake up, number one? And then two, if I wake up in the enticing stage, what should I do? If I wake up in the engaging stage, what do I do? If I wake up in the enrollment stage, what do I do? And if I wake up and I'm at the top of my game, what do I do to stay at the top of my game? Yeah, yeah. I think as well, it's, I mean, you have to know where you are. It's like if you set off in a car to drive from one end of the country to a village on the other end, and you don't know where that village is, you could go past it. You could carry on. If you get addicted to the journey, you could stop too soon. And, and equally so, if you know where you're going, but you don't know where you are, a map won't help you. <laughs> so it really becomes a case of you need three things to succeed. Everyone, children learn, photographers, people in business, you need three things to succeed. And the first one is you need a waggle. And a waggle is a kind of education thing we use. And it means what a good one looks like what a good you looks like. So what a good business looks like, what a good shoot looks like, what a good anything child's writing looks like. And it's kind of like, that's the, here's one I made earlier. That's the example that we reverse engineer the success of that. We pull out all the reasons why it's great. And then we create a toolkit, a roadmap for following those objectives to the goal. So you need to know what a good one looks like at any stage. And what a good one looks like when you're stuck in the kind of empathy stage or the suffering stage might be just getting through the day. (laughs) It might be that. And at the top of your game, a good one looks like is that extra push, that bit of growth that could connect even more, you know, what the next offering, it could be anything at any stage. So what a good one looks like is really important. The next thing you need to know, and this is kind of slightly depressing, is where are you in relation to what the good one looks like? So you could be right at the beginning of a new project, or you could be right at the beginning of a new business, or you could be right sort of in the middle where you've got, you're doing it, but there's something missing. And and I think that's really hard to get curious, be honest about. Because we want to gloss over. That's where it's hard to get off automatic because we want to gloss over and say, no, no, I've got this. It's fine. I'll do this. I'll do this. And we need to know that the choice is bamboozling at that stage. And we need to make conscious decisions about what we're doing. And then the last thing people need to know, and this is the only real thing they need to focus on at that time, is what's your next step? Not what's the entire journey. Just what are you going to do next to get you from where you are closer to where you want to be and sometimes that's just turning your head in the direction that you know you need to be traveling and sometimes it's making a bold step but it's just the idea of at any point in any time 
you can focus on just the one thing, not the entire elephant that you need to eat, just the next thing that you could do that will give you progress. And I think it's the problem with getting hooked at any of those stages is that you sink back into suffering mode. You've got your head down and your hands around your eyes and you're looking at the ground and all you can see in that blinkered mode is the problem. And looking at the problem will give you a real deep understanding of the problem, which is always a circle. So you'll go round and round, but it won't ever give you anything, any opportunity to start solving that problem, to start moving forward. It's only when you bring your head up can you even begin to start looking at options and ideas and even if that first stage is where you're just focused you're still blinkered but your head looking straight ahead and you're just trying to solve this problem trying to get through this one point there's still an opportunity to move there but you can't move if all you're doing is looking at the problem in front of you and saying it's too big it's too awful it's too it's like yeah that's true it's all of that so what we're going to do because the option at the end of the day is to stay where you are and sit in the puddle or to get up And if a success is just a failure who's fallen over again and again and again and got up again and again and again, then we need to start celebrating the wins (laughs) because we look back and think we just see a load of failure behind us, whereas actually there's just a ton of successes. You know, even if all you can look at is I got myself dressed, you know, I haven't been in prison this year. If all you can list are basic things, they're still wins, they're still successes. And I think sometimes it's we focus too much on where we're going and what the waggle looks like and we don't focus enough on the fact that we have got 13 next steps behind us that we took this week that took us on a way forward that the hole that's going to come up in the path ahead we won't fall into it this week because we learned how to circumnavigate it last week because we fell into it every week before that and I think we don't notice these incremental changes and the incremental changes are the bits that make the biggest difference over time. And what we need to focus on is that measurable impact over time, not that quick fix. What can I do now? What can I do to make a difference now? Even though the temptation is to pull yourself right into that, because we're not in this for the now, we're in this for the always. It's not, you know, now until something better comes along or now until I get fed up or now. <laughs> it's, I remember when I was getting married, they were, we were looking at wedding rings and they had commitment rings and it's a 10-year commitment ring. And I said to Ed, if you gave me a 10-year commitment ring, I would punch you on the nose. You're saying, oh, I'll give you 10 years. We'll see how it goes. And at the end of 10 years, I'm <laughs> off. Get, that's not a gift. <laughs> that's whole. I don't want that. I'd rather have nothing than that. So it's that thing of how how committed can you be right now in this space? And if you're focused on the problem, or where you are, then your commitment hasn't got an opportunity to grow. Is this making sense? Oh, yeah. Well, it's so funny. We've not talked about this, but you're coming to go Yeah. to speak at the Go Summit in January. And you and I have not talked about this, but no kidding, this past week, you can check it on our website to see it. But we've gone through this whole story brand process of resetting our tagline and our brand positioning and how we're telling the story of Fastermind. And our framework is really built entirely around fastermind.co helps big people get to what's next. Wow. And it's so I'm so encouraged, number one, to hear and that's gonna be our whole theme for Go and getting like because we're not interested in giving the whole plan yeah. or the whole comprehension. We just want them to get clear on what is the one thing they need to go do next and to actually do it. Which is why we're it's so perfect that you are coming and all the different stars that have aligned for you and I to have like we work together and then we been around in each other been to London quite a bit lately. You've had some incredibly new and exciting experiences in your life. Talk about resource, big picture resource in your life. And now we've had the chance for you to now come over and join us. Talk a little bit about, and this really is the last thing we'll say, but what are you hoping to, if you could wave a magic wand when you come over to go all the way from from London to Southern California in January, which I think is a decent move. (laughs) If you could wave a magic wand, what what would happen at Go? Oh, that's good. And I love that magic wand question because if you ask a magic wand question, do people say, oh, I don't know, an extra hour in bed? That's not thinking big enough, is it? So let me go big time, big. Well, first of all, I will be upgraded to first class on the plane and I will end up sitting next to Will Smith, who will realize he was meant to marry me and what happens in first class stays in first class. So that will happen on the plane. (laughs) I won't tell Ed. I won't tell Ed. I'll tell Ed. It's fine. We've talked about it. But but I I think there... There's two things. There's something for everyone else and there's something for me. And I think really it's maybe it's one thing, but I take something slightly different from it. And it's the gift in speaking to you. I always feel I'm I'm never that original because I feel I've just, we've been talking for 10 years and I've maybe been listening to you for maybe six months. But suddenly I, all the things you've said, I'm sort of realizing and they're resonating and they're manifesting in a way that I must have taken some information in, but not really processed it. So 
one of the things for me is that speaking at Go is an opportunity for me to literally be able to say, this is the struggle. This is the constant answer. This is what I've done. I still struggle. I'm st- And I know I'll be standing there on stage feeling like, what if no one thinks I'm resourceful? What if it's not good? Because that's my internal conversation. And yet I'll do it anyway, because that's the commitment. And the big thing that could happen is that people say, do you know what? That What she said, her story, what she did, if she can do that, I can do that. If she can make those decisions, I can make those decisions. And they will take that agency and that will stay with them and lift them onto a new level of decision making. So it will never be, they will leave, go not having, not staying on the same level of capacity and thought that it will be stretched to, there will be an I can rather than I have, or I did, or I hope, or I might, it will be an I can conversation they'll have with themselves. And I think for me, it's to really, I just, I know that I am at my happiest when I'm using the skills that I've worked at and the talents that I've nurtured and grown and the life that I've been gifted. When I'm taking those three things and with raw honesty and authenticity, gifting that in a way that encourages people to be the change they want to see, that is when I am fulfilling the purpose of even being on the planet. And, you know, that whole thing about about fulfill- that's me at my most resourceful. That's me not giving away who I am, not giving away myself to raise someone else up. That's me being at the most central, authentic place I can be. And that being a gift to other people to see them rise. And they're not, they don't have sympathy. They might have empathy, but they definitely have a will to take a step, to be galvanized into action as a result of that. And that, that is what makes what I do worth it. Because at no other time, my default setting has been misery for so long. I wake up every morning and I have to make a choice to see the positive and to be how I want to live. And every day, even through marrying the best guy on the planet with the most beautiful bottom in Milton Keynes, really is, and having three amazing mini humans of my own and a family and a home and a fridge and clothes and all these amazing things. Never one day have I woken up and said, it's all been worth it. What I went through was all worth it. And the, the first day I did that, was the day after I gave the biggest gift I had. And that was when I did my TED Talk and stood on stage and and did that TED Talk. And the next day I woke up and I thought, is this the day? And I sat up and I said, and I truly mean this, it has been worth it. And that is what redemption looks like. That is what serving your purpose looks like. And if you can get there, if you want to get there, because the journey is hard, but if you can get there, then that is the whole point of survive. That's the whole gift. And that's why all the putting out and all the effort and all the emotional engagement. And it costs me, it costs me to be so honest. It costs me emotionally to do that. It's not therapy, you know, but it costs me, but it's worth it because one person makes one change and that stems out into the life. And I really believe, Dane, that one day we'll be able to hover above our, like these tiny lives we have, hover above it. And for one moment, we'll see the impact and the ripples and we will literally be gobsmacked and speechless at what we did and the impact that had across the globe all because we were prepared to commit to that next step and that's why i'm in this this was episode 10 season 3 of converge the business of creativity podcast converge podcast is brought to you by fastermind.co where we help entrepreneurs go from knowing to doing get started free today by finding out your fastermind owner score go to fastermind.co Music for this episode provided by triplescoopmusic.com. What does your story sound like? This episode was mixed and produced by Podcast Fast Track. <laughs>